Welcome to Talking With Tech. My name's Chris Bouguet, and I'm here joined, as always, with the one, the only, Rachel Madel. How's it going, Rachel? It's good, Chris. I'm excited. We haven't recorded in a, in a second. It's It has been a while, actually. Um, at the time of this recording, we had taken a two-week break because life kind of loomed over the Talking With Tech crew. Uh, stuff happened with, with, in all of our personal lives, and we just said, you know what? we got to put the brakes on the podcast for two weeks. Uh, and it's back now. We're back into our, our schedule. Um, so what have you been up to? What's, what have you been thinking about? What have you been doing? So I actually wanted to share. Um, I, t- I did an Instagram takeover. Chris, do you know what that is? An Instagram takeover. Let me guess. Okay, let me guess. But um, I'm going to guess. So when I hear the word takeover, I think of like a like a pirate has come and you've stolen somebody else's Instagram account and you get to kind of hack into their account and you get to kind of take it over for a period of time where you might post short videos or short uh, posts of any kind, uh, pictures to, to send your message. And then maybe, was it a trade? Like, did they do yours too? Or is it just, no, I just took theirs over? I was a AAC pirate. And I took over Andy Putt. She's, uh, her handle is Miss BGP. Um, she does a lot of talking about autism. And yes, so I took over her Instagram. She didn't take over mine. She, I took over hers. It's the first time I've ever done that, actually. I've seen other people do it, and I was like, oh, how does that work? Now I understand how it works. Um, so Andy put basically a question tab like in her Instagram story, and people ask questions about AAC. And she's actually been doing an entire series um, all dedicated to AAC. So she's had um, you know some other practitioners talk about um, one was like in the schools. I was oh wait, I was talking about helping uh, clinicians. So it was like really clinician focused. Um, one of the, the people went over like parent questions. Um, so it was really cool. But the one thing I want to talk about today was at one point during this takeover, um, I was answering a question because I got so many questions about what are the necessary skills a child needs prior to starting AAC. And I'm like, I mean, Chris, we talk about this literally at every speaking event that we do. It's a huge list, Rachel. I mean, it's a huge list. You probably didn't have uh, a lot of time. You did, you only took over for a little while, so I don't know how you fit it all in. Oh, it was crazy. And I just feel like I feel like I'm a broken record, but I'll be that broken record. Like I'll keep saying over and over again, there are no prerequisites to AAC. And it's just like, it was interesting because some people were like, amen, hallelujah. But some people were like, I disagree. I think a child needs joint attention prior to introducing AAC. I think a child needs, you know, uh, certain levels of foundational language skills before introducing AAC. I think a child needs visual discrimination skills before introducing AAC. Like, you name it, like, I heard it. And it was just like, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to say it other than no. The, the question is, what can we do to change your mind? You know, what is the, somehow along the way, you've formulated this opinion. You have now rooted yourself in it. We can't come in and tell you no, because if we tell you no, then you'll just dig your heels in deeper that you're right. So how can we bring you along to convince you that there's another way to look at things, you know, like like little babies. We don't wait for anything. The second a baby's born, we start talking to them and we start modeling for them. And we don't wait for joint engagement. We don't wait for joint attention. We don't wait for visual discrimination skills. We don't wait for anything. You don't wait to read to your kid. You you don't wait. You just do it. So why would you wait for anybody else, for anything else? Exactly. And I feel like it's just like one of these situations where I think, because I've been thinking about this a lot, 
obviously. And I'm like, okay, like how can I like describe these things in a way that like resonates with people and they get it and like, you know, I change their mind potentially. And I think the problem lies with this expectation that we have that as soon as we introduce a device, a child must demonstrate proficiency in use. It's like as soon as we give them the iPad or some type of system, they show us that they use it. If they don't, then it's not right. They don't have the skills. It's not the right device. And it's like, we need to cool our jets because it's not this immediate thing always. Sometimes it's, sometimes it is. It's like you introduce a device and it's like, wow, like we have so much potential here. Like the child's using it. It's saying things, imitating, you know, the models that we give, all of those things. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't mean that it's not right. It doesn't mean that it's the wrong system. It just means that we need to keep providing support to communication partners. Of course, educating them on the importance of modeling and like give some kids some time to like learn a system, see how it's being used around them. And then, you know, potentially they can start using it themselves. Wow. Yes, 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 yes. So the analogy that comes to my mind is like, imagine giving someone a computer, like you buy a computer and like, well, I don't know how to use this thing. I, I tried it for five minutes and because I'm not an expert at using a computer, I guess I don't use computers, do you know? Or I guess someone should take it away from me because I don't know how to use it. I mean, if that's the case, none of us would have remote controls, right? Because no one knew how to use a remote control and then you learn how to use a remote control. You know, same thing with um, driving a car, you know? Technology takes time to learn, language especially, it, mixed with technology takes time to learn. It's such a ridiculous idea to think that we need to take it away or you need to be demonstrating proficiency right away or it's wrong. 100%. I actually, um, I did a speaking engagement with an organization in San Diego a few weeks ago now, and I was talking to this group. It's an early intervention group, and they all, they've been doing telepractice prior to COVID-19. It's a telepractice group. They're doing early intervention, and they had me come and talk about AAC. And what's super exciting about that, Chris, is that I recorded that talk, and I'm actually adding it to AAC Ally, my course that I just launched in January. So we're gonna have a whole nother hour of awesome content all about early intervention in AAC. And we're opening that up um, in the beginning of April again. So anyway, I'm really excited because I feel like the, a lot of what I was talking about was this concept of like, it's really important to train communication partners, especially with early intervention kids, because they're not gonna show us proficiency. The same way that they babble, you know, kids babble and they don't have proficient use of their speech sounds into words that sound like words for a while, you know? Like the same thing happens with AAC. Like kids have to explore, they have to touch buttons, and then eventually they learn how to use it. And so it's like for me, the shift in early intervention, especially thinking about kids that are less than three years old, it's like, now's the time to really hone in on communication partners and get them feeling confident modeling on a system. You know, taking all of those awesome early language strategies that early intervention providers are already using and just integrating the AAC, the technology, into that. So that like by the time kids do get to a place where they're able to do more types of adult directed instruction and you know explicit instruction for specific vocabulary and all those things, they have such a strong foundation of aided language input from all the communication partners around them. Um, so anyway, it's just like, it kind of all goes hand in hand here. Like it, it keeps circling back to this notion of like, it, we, we can't wait for kids to just show us proficiency. We need to support them so that they learn how to become proficient users.
Exactly. Exactly. It's the same thing with learning anything in school. It'd be like saying, well, sorry, you don't get to learn to read because you haven't demonstrated that you can read. Or you don't get to learn math because, you know what, you haven't demonstrated that you can learn math. No, we teach you math. We teach you read how to read, and we never give up, you know? And we keep trying different strategies and different techniques, um, uh, and we change the implementation uh, that we try to put in place with students until we find something that does work, you know? So, Rachel, I have a follow-up question for you about this takeover. So sometimes because we live in the world we live in, you know, we are surrounded by people that kind of love and do and 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 live and breathe AAC. We live in a little bubble, where I, at least I do, where I think myself that, that, okay, yeah, they've got it now. Like we're past that myth stage. You know, we don't have to keep sharing those myths anymore. So many people, you know, like I don't see people having, making those mistakes anymore. But then... I hear you talk about that, you know, like in this takeover and it's like, oh man, I thought we were past this, you know? So what do you think? Like, what is the the grander scheme there of one, how do we get the word out even at a larger scale? And then two, like, I'm sure the needle has moved, but have we wrapped ourselves in a bubble? I mean, I completely can relate because I was like, I thought we were past that. <laughs> I'm in my little AAC bubble and I'm like, oh my God, AAC for all. Like, you know, and then I realized like, uh, someone burst my bubble when I did that Instagram takeover. Lots of people burst it because lots of people were asking questions and I thought, whoa, but thank goodness. Like Andy, I'm so grateful that she was able to, you know, allow me to come on, bust some of those myths and really reach an audience that, you know, they're not listeners of our podcast. They're not AAC people. Um, there are a lot of speech language pathologists and I'm really excited. And I think that, you know, we can, Chris, continue to collaborate with perhaps people outside of our bubble um, so that we're able to reach more uh, educators and talk about these things. You know, just thinking about all of the questions that people asked, it was, it was so crazy. I got so many questions that I had to like, take it back over to my my Instagram. I'm like, okay guys, I didn't, I, this Instagram takeover is done, but like head over to, you know, at Rachel Madel SLP and like, I'll answer all your questions. And then I got so many, I got like 40 questions. So I like, I started like just answering them slowly. Um, and what's nice is that I'm starting to, we're revamping my Instagram profile for my um, highlights, which are like these little bubbles at the bottom of my profile. Um, so one's about myths. I did one on pecs, which, Maybe that's we'll save that for another banter because a lot of a lot of very uh, different opinions about pecs. And so anyway, I have a whole list of questions and I'm gonna keep answering them over time in my Instagram stories, um, just to you know give people a place to go that's like okay, watch this story, right? Like watch this highlight on the myth about you know prerequisites for AAC, the myth that children will stop talking when they're introduced to AAC. And so that's kind of my, my goal is to keep something that's easily accessible for people. Um, and then like a lot of it is just like, I had like really awesome conversations with people who said, you know, they talked about joint attention and they talked about all these prerequisite skills. And you know, basically my answer was, children learn these skills through the use of a device. So like kids learn visual discrimination by us showing them a device and showing them where all the words are and you know pointing to them and activating them and you know it's like these skills aren't done first and then we have you know introduction to AAC we do it at the same time and the other thing i said was if i was waiting until i got joint attention or engagement with some of my students i would be waiting their whole life 
I have like 13 year olds that I work with who like don't have strong joint attention, but guess what? They have a device and they can functionally communicate and they're using three or four word sentences. And so like, are these things nice to have? Sure. Like I'd love to have joint attention and engagement and, you know, visual discrimination and all these skills, but they're not necessary. They're not necessary to start. Could not agree more. Maybe something we can do, Rachel, is challenge people who are listening to this right now to think about one person, just one person who has not heard those myths busted and send this podcast to them. You know, maybe it's a general ed teacher. Maybe it is a administrator. Maybe it is a colleague that you have. Maybe you've never even had the conversation about AAC, but share this with them so they don't formulate those opinions and then get anchored into this, what we widely know as debunked science, you know? The other thing I just want to add is there was a lot of conversation about prerequisites for high-tech AAC. So it's like, oh yeah, I'll give kids PECs in a communication board, but like until they show us that they can use the PECs in the communication board, like I won't, you know, introduce high-tech AAC. And I'm like, I can't tell you how many kids I've had plateau on some type of low-tech AAC, and the moment I give them access to a high-tech speech generating device, it's like game change. <laughs> like the, the game has been changed with auditory output, especially in a world where everything's on technology. Everything, it ha- we do everything through devices now. So like giving a kid like a laminated picture or a communication board, like, yeah, I'm not surprised they're like, putting it in their mouth or like throwing it on the ground, you know, like it's just not the way we do things anymore. And so it's like the auditory output. Like I think that sometimes we don't, we think about the visual and then we think about the language. And so it's like, it's a communication board, like, but it's so different. That auditory output literally changes the game for some of my kids. Um, Hearing that output, they're like more motivated to touch that button. And then they're learning on their own where all those buttons are and what words are attached with which symbols. And they're, they're able to teach themselves in a lot of ways. Now, of course, we have to come in and teach the language component, right? We, the kids can learn where all the words are on their system, but they don't know how to use them until we show them how to use them. But it's just like the auditory piece of like a high-tech speech generating device makes a huge difference. And like, why wait? Why wait when we know a kid can access this earlier and benefit from it earlier and start learning a long-term robust AAC system earlier? Those uh, those perceptions have were started, I believe, uh, many years ago because high-tech AAC was expensive. It was thousands of dollars to get a high-tech AAC device. School districts could not afford them in the quantities that we now know could be of people that could use them. And then the iPad came along and changed that and made things much more, and the the iPod Touch too, I guess is the predecessor. But those pieces of equipment really dropped the price point, and that really helped eliminate that candidacy model, you know? But when it was so expensive and it was literally, well, free pieces, you know, or printing off a piece of paper and ink versus multiple thousand dollar devices, people constructed reasons not to give it to people. And now we have to break down those, (laughs) all that construction work has to, we need a big, big wrecking ball and just blast it out of space because, man, because a lot of damage was done in those years, you know? Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. I think that's exactly where it stems from. And I think that like, sure, like low tech AAC is better than nothing. But like high tech AAC is optimal, you know? So it's like in a, in, a, in a world where school districts have piles of iPads sitting in rooms <laughs> waiting to be used. 
it's like we need to do we need to do better. And if kids need this to learn language, then like we need to give it to them. So, and I realize that there's a lot of like roadblocks, and it's not as easy as we're making it sound, Chris. But at the same time, it's like we see the power of these systems and these tools for individuals with complex communication needs. There's a lot of road roadblocks, but all of them are overcomable. At- the hardest one is that mindset that you don't have to do it. You know, well, why would I do that? I can just keep printing off low-tech boards and pretending they work as well as high-tech boards. And if I don't change my mind, then I don't, if I can just keep my blinders on, um, like a, like a racehorse looking forward, then I don't have to change. And that's the biggest, I think, roadblock that we have to overcome. 100%. Chris, I feel like I got real jazzed talking about that. <laughs> Get, you wanna... Me too. I was talking about wrecking balls <laughs> and racehorses. You got the metaphors coming out everywhere with me. <laughs> oh, I know. Like, start, like, denying access to robust language systems. And, like, Chris and I get real up in arms. <laughs> so, I'm really excited to introduce uh, our interview today, Alyssa D'Souza. She is a mom who started a YouTube channel for kids with cortical visual impairment. And I found this during the beginning of the pandemic and I was like, game changer. Like how awesome is it that we have this resource for kids with visual impairment? Um, We know that kids with CVI do really well with high contrast. So black backgrounds, red, yellows, um, simple imagery and she was just, she didn't have any resources and she was like, these videos and these books and these songs don't work. Um, you know, so she went out and she started making them herself. Um, and so I thought it was so cool. I share her, uh, her YouTube channel during the presentations that I give. And I asked her, I was like, Hey, do you want to come on the podcast and talk about your experience? Um, so I'm really excited to share, um, like how she, you know, made the YouTube channel, how she shared it, her experience as a parent of a child with complex communication needs. Really fantastic interview. Well, I can't wait to listen to your interview with Alyssa D'Souza. Hey there. If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Alyssa D'Souza. Alyssa is a mom of two living in Southeastern Massachusetts. She's in IT and also has a degree in early childhood education and psychology. Her youngest son, Zane, is medically complex and globally delayed while still lacking a unifying diagnosis. Frustrated by the lack of resources available for children with vision impairment, Alyssa created a CVI-friendly YouTube channel that has thousands of subscribers and has been featured by Perkins eLearning, Past Illiteracy, and countless school districts. In her free time, Alyssa is also passionate about making local businesses more accessible and is building wheelchair ramps out of donated Legos. Alyssa, thank you so much for being here today. I'm so excited to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. (laughs) Awesome. So just tell us a little bit about yourself and your family and how you kind of got started with this whole special needs journey. Sure. So um, like most parents, 
plan wasn't to be on a special needs journey, just kind of happened. Um, my husband and Mike and I, um, we have two boys. Gavin is six, Zane is three. Um, we live in a very old 1860s house in Southeastern Mass that we bought pre-Zane. So it required lots of uh, fixing up and maintenance. And then Zane came along and put a wrench in those plans. Um, so now we still have an old house that needs some maintenance, but it's also full of lots of adaptive equipment and all that fun stuff. Um, my husband is a pilot. Uh, so pre-pandemic, we used to jet set and see the world and live that way. And now we just live on our computers. <laughs> Uh, I know that's like what we're all doing these days, right? It's just like so much yeah. time. <laughs> if you want to connect with people, it's like it has to be through a screen these days. Yes, yes. I miss, I want to give everyone a hug and then I want to hug them again. <laughs> I know, I know. It's so true. It's like so sad with all of the like disconnection that we've had. Um, it's like we took for granted those little things, right? Like hugging a friend yes. when you saw them. Um, yep. I can totally relate to that. Um, yes. So tell me a little bit about like, the, your, your journey has been, you know, kind of all over the place. It sounds like with trying to get a diagnosis for your son. Um, and I know that a lot of parents, um, have had similar experiences, particularly with, with vision impairment, cortical vision impairment is like a journey in and of itself, um, that I think takes a lot of like, you know, trying to figure out other things. And then it's like, oh, maybe there's something visual going on here. Um, so you can just talk about a little bit um, about, you know, the early stages of diagnosis and how that kind of transpired into eventually, um, you know, getting a diagnosis of cortical visual impairment. Sure. Uh, so when Zane was born, he was healthy. Um, when he was three months old, he just started crying all the time. We thought it was colic. Um, and then we got admitted to the hospital for failure to thrive. And on night number two in the hospital, he lost all um, muscle tone. He became a rag doll. Uh, we spent the entire month of December up in Boston where they analyzed every body system. He got um, all kinds of, we call them little diagnoses, like laryngomalacia and sleep apnea and hypotonia, um, but nothing unifying connecting all of those dots. And it was probably a few months after that that he was diagnosed with CBI. And even though CBI is um, one of the top reasons of vision impairment in kids right now, it's still very unknown. And it's one of those... Um, it's a disorder that you can't see. So a lot of people don't always believe that it's real, mm -hmm. which is kind of like COVID. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And it's so interesting. I, I love that you made that point because I think what happens is because it's not issues with vision in the sense of like, you can't see anything. It's really right. just the visual processing. And so, you know, it appears right. as if kids can see, it's like, well, they look and they, you know, they do these things, but um, there's those telltale signs um, that it's like, oh, something could be going on with their visual processing. Um, did you experience any of those telltale kind of red flags for CVI? So uh, Zane would only stare at sunshine. So um, if we would be in our living room, he, um, he came home from the hospital with a feeding tube. So he was set up 
like at an incline because we also had reflux. We had the feeding tube and an incline chair and then the sun would shine in and he would only stare at the spot on the wall. And if we took him outside, it would be the same thing. He would always follow the sun. So we thought that was a little odd. Mm -hmm. um, and then we had his eyes checked out and determined that his eyes were healthy. It was his brain processing the information where the problem was, which is where, what CBI essentially is. Um, so the best way it's been explained to us is looking through a kaleidoscope that he can see things, but it's all kind of jumbled and he has to figure out a way to put it together. And what has been your experience with um, any type of vision therapy? Have you, have you guys gone down that path? Well, <laughs> we were just talking about this the other day with another CBI family. CBI is so expansive. There's so many different phases and levels and each kid has preferred colors and that sort of thing that we really wish that when your child is diagnosed with it, there's almost like a, a welcome bucket of materials to help you help your child. But instead they say, oh, your child has CBI, best of luck. And they send you on your way. Um, like one of the best tools for kids with CVI in the early phases is colored slinkies and a light because it has the motion and the color and you can reduce um, visual background behind it. Slinkies are surprisingly difficult to find. And if a hospital has, you know, all these kids with CVI, if they could just have a little welcome to the CVI community bucket to give us, it would just make life so much easier because you end up drowning in research. And all I needed was a slinky. <laughs> yeah, so so um, simple, right? So, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, just a, a bucket with a slinky and maybe some tissues to help you, you know, dry your eyes after you get over the diagnosis. Like, it's emotional being on this end of a diagnosis. And I think that that's a missing piece a lot of the times, too. Like, I went to school for education and studied special ed, and like, I knew all about IEPs, but I was always on the other side of the table. So, being on this side, having that emotion that you can't always remove, just very different. And now I'm off subject again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, but it's 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 a really great tangent because I think that we oftentimes as practitioners, it's super easy to get into this like kind of desensitized like mode where it's like we're seeing, yeah. you know, so many kids with, um, you know, all these diagnoses that we forget that, yeah. you know, it's a it's a really, you know, big um, grieving process sometimes for families yeah. that are going through that initial stage of like, oh no, something is wrong and I don't know how to help. And I don't know if it's going to get better. And, um, I think that that can be really scary for families. Um, yeah. and I think that as practitioners, it's really important for us to remember that, um, and being sensitive to that. Um, I know I always try to do that with families that I work with because, um, you know, oftentimes I think there's like the fear of the unknown, um, and yeah. trying to relieve that fear. Um, like, you know, I've seen kids get better. Like we, this is yeah. not like, you know, and, and the end of the road, right. This is just the beginning. Um, and you're going to see things change and grow. And, um, but I think that's such a, a missing piece sometimes. Yes. And it seems so obvious that yes, we're his parents and we would like you to treat him like a person. Um, but it seems so like, we're so 
routine when it comes to medicine sometimes that we forget that human aspect of it. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. thanks for, for making sure you're not that person. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I can, I, a lot of parents feel similarly to you. Um, and I think it's just something important that we need to kind of keep checking in on because even myself, I feel like I can get into the like work mode where I'm just like, okay. And then I see this family and then I see that family and then I see that family. Um, <laughs> but it's just like, you know, these are families, right. And these are like really big, you know, things that are coming up for families. Um, so I think it's just important to like, keep reminding yourself of that, um, like connecting like on a human level with people that like are across your desk, you know? Um, I think that's such an important thing. So right before Zane was diagnosed with CVI, he failed his hearing test. Mm, Um, so he was diagnosed with bilateral hearing loss, um, which at the time we thought was, you know, devastating. Um, which in hindsight, like when he got fitted for his hearing aids, we, they were like, Oh, just so you know, and they were very gentle with us. And we were like, we just spent a month in the ICU, like just give him a blue one. We're cool. We're great. And then he got diagnosed with CBI and overnight he became a deaf blind child. He's like our very own Helen Keller. Like the books you read about in elementary school is now my child. So Maybe he'll write 12 books. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's the importance of literacy, right? Figuring out a way to teach him (laughs) reading and writing. We're really big fans of that on this podcast. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your like experiences just with, we talked a little bit about the doctor experience, but I'm sure he gets lots of therapies, correct? So he was enrolled with early intervention while we were still in the hospital. Um, My oldest son had fluid in his ears, so his speech was impacted. So we already had a relationship with um, an early intervention coordinator. And um, Gavin had just aged out of EI when Zane got sick. So she was still checking in with us to see how everything was going. And she knew that when we came home, he was going to need services. So she enrolled him while we were still bedside in the hospital so that when we were just um, therapies were already set up for him. So he had OT, PT, speech. Um, and then we ended up requesting vision services after the CBI diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And what has been your experience, just like the therapy process, like the good, the bad, the ugly? <laughs> Um, so welcoming strangers into your house after all of these traumatic, um, incidents is very, um, humbling and, um, you have to lower the bar as far as like standards that you have for keeping your house clean and what, um, what you look like. Like I never thought that I would let people into my house while I was still in pajamas and hadn't brushed my teeth, but eight o'clock was when occupational therapy was. So when they first started, I did my best to, you know, be ready and the house would be spotless. And after year two, they would come in and I'd be like, I'm going to run upstairs and, you know, change into different PJs now. (laughs) (laughs) My like day PJs. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so yeah, therapy, um, that all the therapists became like family members to us. We saw them more than we saw our own families, um, and our friends. It's amazing how isolating having a special needs child can be, um, from an aspect of having all these appointments and not being around to go to things. And then also 
it can be heartbreaking to watch your friend's kids achieving all the milestones that your child is. And it's not that you don't want their kids to, like you want to cheer them on. But at the same time, there's this little piece inside of you that, you know, that was our dream. That's supposed to be our kids playing together. And instead, you know, we have a, a stander and a gate trainer and two IV poles and however many other things that take up our entire house. <laughs> like all the baby equipment that everyone gets to move aside with, with Zane, like our house is constantly full of stuff and it keeps getting bigger and it's more to stub your toe on. <laughs> Yeah, no. And I think that you, you make a, a good point, which is um, the constant kind of reminder that, you know, you do have a, a child with special needs um, probably happens, um, you know, without you even being in control of it. Um, it just feels like a natural thing. Um, I think we as human beings are very comparative. We compare ourselves and our lives to everybody else. And so when you're doing that so acutely, um, it, it can be, I think, challenging. Yes. Or even just hearing people complaining about their healthy kids, like, oh, my child didn't sleep through the night again. Like, oh, you're up for 10 minutes. That's so sad. <laughs> like Zane is up for five hours a night and he wraps his feeding tube around his neck like a noose. Like we can't compare your stories. And while I want to have sympathy for you, like I, I want that. <laughs> so it's, it's a very strange place to be in. And I think that that's why it's so important for parents to really find a community where people understand the struggle, right? Yes. I think that that's the, the hardest thing probably being diagnosed initial, in the initial stages is you don't have anybody who's going through a similar experience. You're in this yeah. like lane by yourself and it's scary. Um, and so is there any you know advice you would give to parents who are listening um, about how to create that community for, for yourself? How do you get involved? How do you even reach out or find people um, who are going through similar experiences? We, I don't know if you would call it fortunate, but we were fortunate that um, we had friends of friends who also had special needs kids that we were able to sync up with. And um, they have been our our go-to people to text of like, can you believe this just happened? Or who do you call when this happens? Like the system is so broken. And until someone else has gone through it, you really don't know who to turn to. It's like being caught in a phone loop of like press zero for assistance, except there is no zero and there's no assistance. <laughs> so you just, you have to find a mom tribe, whether that's your early intervention staff, you know, not breaking HIPAA laws, but seeing if they can connect you as long as both parties agree and bring you together. Or when you reach, uh, you know, age three and you age out of EI and you have that solidifying moment of, oh, it's, it, we're really in this for the long haul. It wasn't just a phase. Um, there might be parents at that school, that sort of thing. Um, but it, it makes life easier to find people in similar situations just so you have a sounding board. Yeah, definitely. I've been um, a connector of clients of mine um, just because I, you know, I think that network is so important. And sometimes, especially in the early stages, it's really hard to figure that network out. And I feel like when you inter are introduced to one family, it's almost like they've opened the door to like the special needs parenting community uh, yeah. because they have inevitably typically have re relationships with other parents. And so um, I find that if I can at least connect, you know, two parents together, um, then oftentimes the, the connections keep kind of multiplying. 
Yep. Yeah, our greatest connection this far is um, Zane is a part of a palliative care program through our local um, hospice center. Mm-hmm. And they provide services like child life services for our oldest son to help him better understand like having a special needs younger brother and he's very mature for his age so he understands more than he should Mm -hmm. Um, so they just kind of help him with his feelings and let him have some one-on-one attention because Mm -hmm. Zane has you know so many one-on-one sessions with people here Um, but they also have holiday parties that they may not be like the fanciest shindig but the the mingling that you do in the room and finding the other parents has been um probably the best part of being a part of the palliative care program. Yeah. And that sibling experience is one to, you know, think about, because I think that that is a very common situation where one, you know, one child gets a lot of attention just because they have a lot of medical needs, um, you know, and therapy needs and all of these needs. Right. Um, And so the, the sibling piece, I think is one that I think we're talking about and hearing about a lot more now. Um, and I think it's such an important thing to think about. So I'm happy to hear that your son has access to that because that's what a really invaluable resource to to really think about. It's not just the child, right? It's the, the yes. whole family as a unit, thinking more family-centered practice. Um, yeah. I love that. Yeah. When, when I was pregnant with Zane, you know, we hyped up, you know, you're going to be a big brother and he's going to play with you. And he knows that Zane is different, uh, but there's still every once in a while, like, is Zane ever going to play with me? And then, you know, you have to wipe the tears and come back and regroup. Um, but he's, he's grasping it better and having that one-on-one time with someone who's there just for him has, has made it better for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I love, I love the, the sibling piece too. When I'm, I'm thinking about therapy, I love incorporating siblings into the mix because, um, you know, if we can build those relationships within a family unit, um, I think that's really great work. Um, and also kids learn way more from other kids than they ever can from adults. So just from like a strategy standpoint, I feel like getting (laughs) is really, really valuable too. Yes. So let's, let's talk, Alyssa. So we, I connected with you because I stumbled upon your amazing YouTube channel. So Alyssa has a YouTube channel that is dedicated to CVI friendly videos. Um, and I have to tell you, Alyssa, I am constantly shouting you out whenever I'm presenting at conferences. I'm like, in case anybody hasn't seen it, go to this YouTube channel. Um, you know, I've presented to thousands of clinicians and I'm all telling them linking to your, your YouTube. Um, cause I just think it's such a valuable resource and it's, there's nothing out there like that. Um, you know, and it's so important that we start thinking about, you know, how can we have kids who have CVI, have accessibility to the same, you know, types of videos and fun things that all kids benefit from and enjoy. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about how you decided to kind of say, okay, I don't see this out there. I'm going to create it. Um, cause I just I mean, love that. I mean, not everyone just throws together PowerPoints when they're frustrated by lack of resources. <laughs> no, no, Alyssa, not everybody does that. <laughs> oh. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, so when Zane was having his early intervention uh, services, he had a TVI, a teacher for the visually impaired, um, and she didn't have CVI experience. So she came in with her bag of tricks, but it was for kids with, you know, I don't want to call it typical blindness, but like actual eyes that didn't work as opposed to the 
pathways to the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so she did a lot of feely things. Um, but where Zane is deaf blind, if you take someone who's deaf blind and they, you know, use their hands for that for their entire life, and you shove it in a bunch of sensory things, they mostly don't respond well to that. So Zane would have meltdowns after every session. And the only thing that would calm him down would be watching Sesame Street. Mm-hmm. Sesame Street is very visually fatiguing. It's bright, it's fast moving, there's lots of colors. But there's one segment, uh, it's the letter of the day, I believe, and they just changed it and it was very frustrating. Um, it's all black background and puppets. So Zane could focus on the puppet moving and he loves music like most kids with visual impairments. Um, So that got me thinking. And um, the other thing is we read all of these CBI parent books like Little Bear Seas and Dr. Roman's work. And it all said, you know, um, reduce visual clutter, black backgrounds, um, backlighting like iPads or TVs. So to me, that screamed there should be a TV show for kids with vision impairment. And we were working with, you know, the top blind school in the area. They didn't have a TV show. I was like, well, if you're telling me that he needs a backlit with this and this, like you should make a show. Like, oh, one doesn't exist. I took a very, very basic high school training of PowerPoint that I used to make horrible slides in the early 90s. And if you watch the very first video I ever made, um, I did it in my car in the parking lot on my lunch break at work that it didn't even have my iTunes account on it. So I had my cell phone playing a song into the microphone. So it's, <laughs> it's horrible, horrible quality. Uh, but I threw a bunch of animals and I played Old McDonald Had a Farm and I put it on the CBI um, parents page on Facebook. It was like, I don't know if your kids would like this, but I'm desperate for my son to be able to watch TV like his brother does let me know if your kids like it. And everyone was like, this is great. This is, this is something that we should work on. And, you know, 30 videos later, here I am still making PowerPoints on my lunch break. They've, they've gotten a little better. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And it's just a perfect example of how, you know, there's a need that's not being filled and, you know, how do you solve that problem? Um, and so I'm, I'm guessing you, you use them with your son, right? I do. He, uh, he's my worst critic. Um, he will blatantly like ignore the TV if it's something he doesn't watch. So I always appreciate when other parents say like, Oh, my daughter's so excited to watch these. She claps along. Like, well, at least someone's clapping for them because saying sometimes it doesn't at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's fun. And my, my oldest son, um, is really interested in the process. So you can hear his voice in a few of them. So we try and make it a family uh, event. He picks out some of the books. Um, other parents have reached out saying, oh, my child really loves this animal or this book. Can you help me? And it, it doesn't cost me anything other than time to make them. And if it's if it's a resource that's going to benefit hundreds of kids, then who am I to say no to that? Well, I definitely um, am excited because, you know, this podcast has thousands of clinicians who listen, who, you know, are definitely working with kids with CVI. Um, So um, I'm excited because perhaps they have ideas. (laughs) work with. Um, and this can, this can get even bigger than it already is. Um, I think the work that you're doing is really amazing. And I just think it's so nice that we have the technical 
that we have the technology capacity to be able to create something and then share it. And so many people can benefit from it. That's like the coolest thing in the world. Um, so thank you to people like you, Alyssa, who, you know, create something and then share it because it's a lot of people create things, but a lot of people are too afraid to share. Um, and so it's just, it's really wonderful because so many people can benefit from the work that you're doing. Thanks. I have to give credit to some of my friends for singing for me. Um, (laughs) Oh, it's not you singing, Alyssa? (laughs) Some of the voices are me. Um, Some are friends who I'll randomly text in the middle of the night, like, can you sing into your phone really quickly? I need a new song. Um, (laughs) I was, you know, a chorus kid all through high school and college, but, um, you know, I'm not sleeping. I haven't slept since Zane was three months old. So if it would be a very scratchy song. And I don't think anyone wants that blaring through their TVs at any time of day. So (laughs) I lean on my friends and um, free resources on the internet for pictures and we just throw it together and go from there. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm curious, what advice would you give to either parents or professionals about CVI? Just because again, it's one of those things that it's kind of still a mystery. Not a lot of people know a lot, a lot about it. Not a lot of clinicians know about it. Um, so is there any advice that you would give that you found really useful throughout your journey with CVI with your son? Uh, the best thing we did was buying a copy of little bear C's. Um, It was a book written from both a parent's perspective and it has um, comments from Dr. Roman. Mm -hmm. Um, We tried to reduce clutter in our house. Uh, We ended up putting a shower curtain rod across the door frame of our living room and we hung black curtains, which we looked like we were this gothic, strange house. Like, I mean, if anyone listening has black curtains, I don't mean it's offensively at all. But it it just, it kind of separated the room and we could stand in front of it so that Zane could focus on us or the toy and we could just pivot his wheelchair and have him sit in front of it and focus on things. And that seemed to make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, reading as much as you can and implementing the strategies that they suggest, even if, you know, it doesn't go with your color scheme. Like if it temporarily means that your house doesn't look pretty, but you're child's neuropathways are going to, you know, come back and they're going to gain some vision, then then put up a curtain in your house and and wear a solid colored shirt and uh, buy, like Zane's color was red. We had red everything. There was a red sticker on the ceiling over his changing tables. We had something to focus on and Mm -hmm. uh, red on his feeding tube pole and red everything. And now he can, he's jumped from phase one to phase five without any true vision services other than what we've implemented. So wow. um, if that's a testament to, you know, parental dedication in addition to, you know, life miracles, um, I think it's just uh, important to tell parents to not give up and just keep trying because progress is possible. Um, and you should always assume that it is instead of just accepting what they tell you. 
I really appreciate that, Alyssa, because I think there's this idea, uh, perhaps, that you always need, you know, really intensive therapeutic services. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, those services aren't valuable, because I think anytime you have a, you know, skilled practitioner working alongside of you, that you can make a lot of progress. Um, but I really find that when you have parents who are so dedicated to learning and growing and implementing, um, you don't need necessarily that really intensive therapeutic approach um, because these these parents like yourself are like quite scrappy and they're <laughs> they're very dedicated. Um, I've worked with so many families who you know perhaps they're not getting you know intensive speech therapy, but um, the therapy they are getting is very um, inclusive of parent training and um, they're really taking what they're learning from you know not only the sessions but also from the internet and books and webinars and podcasts and all of these places. Yeah. I'm in really implementing it. Um, so I'm happy to hear that you have had success just implementing those strategies um, because I think that that is sometimes um, an overwhelming thing for parents to feel like, oh my gosh, I need to do all these things and they need to be super intense and I need to spend all this money. Um, you know, I think you can spend time and energy learning what kinds of things can be helpful um, and you can see a lot of success that way as well. Yeah, I think for us to not calling it vision therapy, um, we would incorporate little bits of vision throughout our day. Mm -hmm. So it wouldn't constantly be like a, a training event, but we'd give them a break and let them watch TV. And then we would bring them back to a light up toy. And then we give them another break. And it was just little bits throughout the day so that it didn't feel so taxing on us because you shouldn't have to be a caregiver and a parent and a therapist all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And then a pandemic hit and you were all of those things. Plus you're working remotely. It's just, you can't do all of those things and be good at all of them. So trying to find a balance and also not, you know, hate each other in the process because you haven't seen anyone outside of your four walls in nine months. <laughs> yes. Yes. I think everyone can relate to that. <laughs> for sure. Um, were there, were there any things that you noticed with Zane while you were going through, you know, that process where you were like, Oh, wow, I think this is actually working. Like what were the telltale signs that you were seeing improvement in his vision and his vision processing? Um, Kids with CVI like um, known objects. So if they can see something and they finally register with it, that's what they're drawn to. Mm -hmm. And we had a bucket of toys from my older son that we had been saving for Zane, um, hoping that he would eventually grow into them. And he would look past them. He wouldn't reach for them. Mm -hmm. And we would we put them away for a while. We brought them back, still no interest. And then one day he focused on one. We're like, oh, this is, this is the moment. <laughs> um, so he's finally at the point where he can see new things and he's also reaching for them in addition to looking to them. Mm -hmm. So those were like really big aha moments. And then also facial recognition, which we didn't know if he would ever get to that phase, but he smiles at me in the morning, which is like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> all the feels. Um, so that's, that's really, really cool for us. Um, he's still nonverbal, um, developmentally, he probably like a five month old and he's three and a half now. Um, but just smiling at his parents and his brothers, you know, it's enough for right now. We're, we're setting higher goals, but for right now, we're, we're pretty excited that he can see us. 
I'm sure. I mean, I'm sure as a parent to like finally feel like, oh my gosh, he sees me. He knows who I am. Um, It has to feel like so wonderful. Um, And it probably solidifies like, yes, this is why we put a black curtain up in our, you know, in our house and have dedicated all of these hours to all of these strategies, right? Yeah. Makes it worth it. (laughs) Exactly. Um, I want to touch a a bit on, so the nonverbal piece. So have you guys started introducing any type of AAC or or any type of alternative communication systems with him? So um, insurance is a joke, as I'm sure you know. I know. Um, <laughs> For sure. Uh, yeah. So um, Zane is a medical mystery. Um, I know that you had mentioned that at the beginning. Um, he doesn't have a unifying do- diagnosis. He has um, 10 different teams of specialists in Boston. We went out to the Mayo Clinic for 14 days for a full workup. Um, they also could not come up with anything. So he's just rare um, with no name to whatever it is that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, when you don't have a diagnosis, they can't bill you properly for insurance. So we get caught in this loophole of, oh, well, in order for this piece of equipment, you need to have cerebral palsy or you need to have this or even grant money. Grant money is usually specific to a condition. Mm-hmm. We don't have a condition. We have a global delay, which insurance doesn't even like that term. Mm -hmm. So we got um, words. Yeah, we got a referral (laughs) to the Augmentative Communications Clinic at Children's Hospital. They presented him with a switch and he lit up. He just he did wonderful with it for a kid with low tone. He was hitting it with his hands to turn on a fan. He was kicking it to turn on a disco light. They wrote up a um, a prescription for all these switches and iPad mounts. It took 11 months for insurance to approve it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's absurd. So in 11 months, we borrowed one from our um, RCP through early intervention, um, which also took a while. And when insurance finally came through, Zane uh, got the equipment. We couldn't get another appointment with them because then COVID started and we couldn't have an appointment to learn how to use it properly based on his skill set. So He's great with a switch, um, but it's been a struggle to get back in to try and learn how to better use it. Mm, man, it's honestly, it's so sad to hear that story. And yeah. <laughs> it's just like so many parents have that exact situation right now, especially. Um, and so it's just like probably so hard as a parent to just feel like, I want to do it. I want to do all the things, but like, how do I get <laughs> access to the people who can teach me how to do all the things? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I think that, do you have the equipment yet or not yet? Uh, we have most of it. Um, they substituted a few things. Um, he's good at using the switch um, to turn things on and off. Um, one of his favorite things to do is turn the lights on and off on the Christmas tree um, that we kept up for a little longer than we should have. Yeah. Um, but um, at this point, he's he's past the phase of turning things on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, but with his CVI and he also has an undiagnosed movement disorder, he's constantly wiggling. So um, we're trying out like a low tech eye gaze board and he's good at focusing if you give him two options. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're not sure how that'll translate to like a communication app on the iPad, mm-hmm. which will okay. probably take another year to approve anyway. So it's a good time. <laughs> 
Oh, yikes. Well, I can definitely send you some resources. Um, there's some really, there's some really great, um, like high contrast symbols, um, that you could download. And I think that that would be um, a really good idea to get started. Um, you know, you could start with just yes and no. Um, you can do something like more and all done just to start getting him used to thinking through those language concepts. Um, you know, being able to get familiar with some of those symbols, um, I think could be a really good low tech strategy yeah. to get started while all of the, you know, high tech stuff, um, is kind of in the waiting wings. Um, so I'll definitely send that over and we can link to those in the show notes. They're through project core, which is a really amazing website. Um, and we'll definitely also link in the show notes to your YouTube channel because I Ooh. definitely want everybody <laughs> to check it out. Um, I, there's one thing, Alyssa, that I always ask everybody who comes on the show. Um, if you had a billboard that every SLP could see, what would you want your billboard to say? Um, first, I would say thank you because you do wonderful work. And I think a lot of therapists don't get thanked enough. So thank you. <laughs> Jazz hands, all that fun stuff. Um, and I think, I mean, I know that you do this and our SLP was wonderful to work with. Um, just like taking feedback from parents on things that work. Mm -hmm. um, we would come up with like a strategy for Zane and a week later she would come back with a change in what she was presenting. Like we told about the visual contrast and she would, we were doing Zoom meetings with her and she got a black curtain for behind her on Zoom calls. So she she incorporated uh, multiple disabilities in her practice. It wasn't just speech. And I think catering to the whole child or the whole family is very important for the child and the family. Because um, it's, it's, you know, the, the entire group is not just the child getting the mm -hmm. services. No, I completely agree. And I think what is important about what you just said is that I think sometimes parents feel like, well, I don't want to like step on toes and like tell my therapist like how to do their job. Um, but as a therapist on the other side of it, like, please tell me all the things that you're finding, because I feel like parents know their kids way better than we could ever imagine um, to know them. And so if we could get that information, it just helps our job. It makes our job so much easier. Um, and so I think that open communication between therapists and parents, um, you know, of course it takes a therapist who's open and willing, right. Which doesn't yeah. always happen. Um, <laughs> so, you know, you have to kind of finesse it and figure out, you know, clinicians who are working with clinicians who are open and willing to collaboration. But when you're working with kids with complex communication needs, like we all have to, you know, approach it from a team from a team angle, right? So we yeah. all can kind of put input and collaborate and brainstorm and troubleshoot because these are the most complex cases. So we need, we need a, a, a hive mind, um, to make sure that we're, we're optimizing the things that we're doing and we're all doing things in the same way. So I think that's a really important point about, um, you know, just collaboration with parents. Amazing. So Alyssa, thank you so much for coming. I appreciate all of your insight. I love having parents on the podcast because I think there's no better way to you know, guide clinicians in the practice that we do. Um, we have a lot of parents who listen to this podcast too. Um, so I'm sure parents can relate to a lot of the things you're saying. We have newly diagnosed parents who are hopefully listening to this and getting some ideas about what to do with their, you know, children, um, specifically in relation to CVI. Um, we'll definitely link to your YouTube channel and our show notes. Um, how can people reach you online besides the YouTube channel? Is there another place to find you? 
honestly, I never thought anyone would want to reach me. <laughs> I feel like a celebrity at this point. I'll have to brag to my six-year-old. <laughs> Maybe yes. order some merch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get some branding going for yeah. the CVI Friendly YouTube channel. <laughs> all the rage just wait um i don't have a platform but um maybe i'll make one and i'll link it on the youtube page yeah you know what i think might be good Alyssa, is maybe start a facebook page so maybe okay. just start a facebook page and that way what i like about that is that of course you can upload all of your new videos but um it also can be a place that you share other cvi friendly resources and information articles you find helpful um so that could be a really good idea um just because i think a lot of people are on facebook and a lot of people share things on facebook yeah. um yep. so i think that could be really good if you do that let us know and we'll definitely we'll promote all right you. Stay tuned. I can't wait. <laughs> awesome. Thank you again so much, Alyssa. I really appreciate you, you coming on and talking to me today. Thanks for having me. This was wonderful. Awesome. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Madel, joined by Alyssa D'Souza. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys next week.